0: I'll make a statement that I will assume most of you would agree with in that we are the most privileged generation to have ever walked the face of this earth in the realm of technology. Things that are available to us, which were not available to generations past, would boggle the mind of those ancients who lived before us. I mean, can you imagine if Alexander the Great had the privilege of jumping into a jet? to fly over all the regions that he controlled what would he give what portion of his kingdom what if napoleon had a cell phone can you imagine that hey uh uh, napoleon you might not want to go to that place called waterloo you know think of the things that you have available to you today that the rulers of the ancient past it never entered their mind We live in a remarkable time, and today our knowledge of the heavens and the universe exceeds that of all the previous generations who have ever walked the face of the earth combined. They could look at the stars, but had no comprehension of what was out there in the universe. Since the advent of the telescope, we've taken quantum leaps forward. With the arrival of the space program, we have no excuse not to marvel at the things of God, if you look at it from a godly standpoint. Today we're going to look at it both through the eyes of one who believes in God, and we're going to look at the universe through the eyes of science, and take a little bit of a tour in the way that perhaps would leave us feeling a sense of awe. I watched uh, some of the um, NBC sports coverage yesterday of some of the winter games. And the guys who were snowboarding, shooting half-tubes, were doing a great job. It was fun to watch them. And invariably, every one of them, as the guy walked up to him, put a camera in front of his face, his buddies gathered around him, and they asked him, what would you think of that? Oh, awesome, dude! And it was, it was fun to watch them, but their definition of awesome is totally different than that which I would use when I think of the things of space. When you think of the word awesome, this is what the Hebrew word interpretation of it actually means. To fear or to revere. Actually, if you look at the very bottom of the definition, it says reverence because it's a terrible thing. Not terrible bad, terrible good. This is a word I want you to remember as we work through this message today. So say this with me, yare. Uh, Very good, try it again, yare. Comes right from the gut, doesn't it? Okay, say it again, yare. I love that word, it comes from deep. Yeah, you're doing good with it, excellent, yare. So next time one of your friends come up to you and say, awesome, you say, no, yare. All right, yare. And when the ancients used that word, they used it in a sense of understanding what it really meant in in, in fear of God, in fear of things they didn't understand. And so they said, Yareh. Because it was a horrible, terrifying thing to them. Okay? So as you work through this, think about Yahweh with a sense of wonder and awe and reverence of I don't understand it. I'll ask you a question. What can the finger of God do? Scripture answers that question for us. If you look at the book of Psalms, it'll come up on the screen. Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. The work of God's fingers, we're told, are the heavens. So if his fingers can do that, just imagine. Let's do a bit of a sixth grade science review. Any sixth graders in the room? Sixth grader, are you able to name the planets in the solar system? <laughs> you used to. At one point you learned it, right? Okay. Anybody in here that knows the name of the planets in the solar system that's still in the school system? You want to give it a shot? Nine planets. At one, actually, Pluto was declassified, so you don't have to include Pluto. Go for it if you want to. Yeah, if you want to. Right, start at the sun. Oh, I hadn't heard it that way. Okay. In other words, that would be Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, Uranus, and Pluto. Pluto is declassified. You are correct. And getting crowd feedback already. Yes, Pluto was declassified a couple of years ago, much to the chagrin of the family of the man who discovered it. Okay. Now, sixth graders or someone else we're in a solar system made up of those nine planets which are in what galaxy milky way correct let's bring up the milky way this is not the milky way actually that's the andromeda galaxy but it looks very similar to ours (laughs) Now, the milky way galaxy if you were to place us in that picture you would place the solar system that belongs to the planet earth on the outskirts of that solar system We are nowhere near the center, and that's why when you look up at the nighttime sky and you see that haze of stars, it's so bright to us because we're on the outskirts looking inwards towards the center. Now, our nearest star is Alpha Centauri. You might remember that from high school adults that were in here, and that's about four light years away. Now, when you start getting into light years, it gets very confusing. I'll be the first to admit that. There's probably some science teachers in here. I know there's biology majors in here from college days because I've talked to some of you and you're saying this stuff is just mind-boggling when you really start digging into it. Now, Alpha Centauri is four light years away and that's the Andromeda galaxy. That is actually two million light years away. To put that in perspective of how far you would have to go to get there, I'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey this morning just for about five minutes or so. We know that light travels at about 186,000 miles per second. So this light beam, as fast as I click it on, light travels to that wall 186,000 miles per second. So, pretty quick. Now, if you were to jump onto a light beam that was leaving the sun this morning at about 6 o'clock this morning when your alarm went off, how many of you got up at 6 o'clock this morning? <laughs> okay, if you were to jump on a little light beam, let's say you could just ride on that baby, and it took off from the sun at 6 o'clock this morning, it would take it eight minutes to get from the sun to the planet Earth. Okay? And then from the planet Earth out to Jupiter, it would take about another 40 minutes. So it took 50 minutes for that light traveling at 186,000 miles per second to get from the Sun out to Jupiter when I got up here to preach at 1130 this morning that little light beam was just leaving our solar system now let's put this in perspective if this podium represents the Sun and the Grand Canyon 2200 miles away represents the edge of the known universe if you were to leave our solar system this morning in that period of time You would not have even traveled the width of my fingernail. That's an awesome thought. That light travels that far, and God says you haven't even begun to explore the fringes of what I've done. Now, leaving our solar system, if you were to leave our solar system, you would not have to think about that light beam again until the year 2014. And that's when that light beam would actually reach that first sun, Alpha Centauri. It wouldn't be until 32,000 years later that that light beam would actually reach that galaxy, the nearest known center of the galaxy, the Milky Way. It would take 52 million years for that light beam to reach the next closest galaxy, the Andromeda Galaxy. So I'm sorry to defeat your imagery when you think of Star Wars and Star Trek and traveling at warp speed. It's unknown how vast this universe is to us. And God said, this is the work of my fingers. Now I would like to put some science behind that to help you understand that. So let's look first at what Job 26 said when I said this is the fringe of his ways. Job 26, 14, these are but the outer fringe of his works how faint the whisper we hear of Him. Who then can understand the thunder of His power? I love that verse. If we can't even understand the work of His fingertips, who can understand the thunder of His power? So let's go into our text. Where we're at in the book of Origins is we're actually moving all the way to verse 14 this morning. It's taken a long time to get here. About six weeks now we've been working through the book of Genesis. Genesis. Genesis 1 and verse 14. And if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, it'll be up on the screen. Genesis 1, 14, and there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Verse 16. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. And in the middle of that passage, this simple little statement. Oh, by the way, he made the stars also. We're given no scientific explanation of that. They just threw that in. He made the stars also. I have a friend um, who is internationally known, and um, I spent a lot of time with him in the 80s and 90s, and I thought that I knew him well. I thought I understood the depth of how um, well-known he was until I actually went to visit him at his uh, corporate headquarters, world headquarters down in Missouri. When I got down to Missouri, um, it happened to be a public day because this guy's an international celebrity and he has these corporate headquarters in which people come to see him because he's a world famous artist. People lined up by the tens of thousands that day to get his autograph. I was shocked. I thought I knew my friend Sam well. I arrived the day before and just went out to dinner with him so that we could just catch up. I knew that the next day was a public day, but I didn't understand what that meant. People started showing up at 6 in the morning to get his autograph. They stayed until 10.30 that night when the security people made them leave. I thought I understood things about Sam until... Some of his security people that day took me around the campus because I was getting bored just sitting there with him in the chair watching him sign another autograph. Hi, how are you? How can I make this out? Sign it again. Getting writer's cramp. So they started driving me around this world headquarters, taking me to places where there were massive warehouses filled with inventory of things that not only that they had manufactured, but that he had produced and purchased from around the world. As I got to know him better, I found out that he owned mansions in countries around the world. I thought I knew Sam, but I didn't really know Sam until I got a little more into his world. We think we know things about the universe. You know, we can't barely begin to scratch the surface. We would all readily admit that. Science would readily admit that. So science is stuck with this concept of trying to discover more, and we talked about this guy six weeks ago, Dr. Herbert Spencer. Dr. Herbert Spencer, back in 1905, tried to categorize the things that we know about the universe by saying you can put it into five categories, time, force, action, space, and matter. Five categories still used today in the world of physics. Everything can be put into that category. Now, I told you six weeks ago that that little Science measurement matches up very nicely with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you look at in the beginning, that's time. God, that's force. Created, that's action. The heavens, that's space. The earth, that's matter. We looked at that six weeks ago. If you categorize all those quantities and keep in mind where we're headed today, I will come back to that and help you know why we looked at that six weeks ago. Just keep that in the back of your head. Time, force, action, space, matter. Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. All their host means all the stars, all the moons, all the, sun, all the galaxies, all the asteroids, all the nebula. Everything that you see in the way of pictures from space, God says right there in that verse, with his mouth, all their hosts. That's what that actually represents. It was all made because God spoke it into existence. Psalm 33, 9. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So at the very outset, when he created light, before there were any of the solar system planets in place, light existed. We examined that a couple weeks ago. And then God said, I'm going to attach the light to the planets light is not created by the stars it's produced by the stars light is not created by the Sun it's produced by the Sun God created light now this account of creation produces three distinct categories and I want you to look at that very closely with me in Genesis 1 let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. So the first function you might want to circle in your Bible this morning is separate. The very first thing that he did is he used the separation of the light from the darkness. One of the first 3. Now for those two things to be separated, they had to have already existed, correct? You can't separate something that doesn't exist. And this is before the sun was created. The sun was created on the fourth day. But for the first three days, you've got light and darkness. And God separated the light and darkness before the sun was created. And the second thing is, besides to separate, is to dominate. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. If you look at the word seasons in Hebrew, it's moed, And it actually means kind of like temperature control. God gave us the seasons to separate the cycle on the planet so that you could have vegetation. So you could put toast in the toaster this morning. So that you could have wheat growing in the fields. If you didn't have the separation of the seasons, the earth would be scorched. You have to have the replenishing cycle. So God gave us first to separate. Second, he gave us the planets to dominate. And third... He said, I'm going to give it to you to illuminate. Just to illuminate the earth. Let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the the earth. Now here's the area that I find Christians get uh, into that I want to caution you on. When they look at for signs and for seasons, they begin applying that to astrology. Very dangerous area. Not something that you should be necessarily experimenting with. Because of what God said in Job. God said in Job 9.9, Who makes the bear, Orion and the Pallades, and the chambers of the south? I don't know if you knew that God talked about the constellations in Scripture. But He's saying, I made the constellations. He's talking with Job and having a conversation. I made the bear, the big dipper. I made Pallades. I made Orion's belt. This takes us all the way back to what we looked at in the first week when we looked at Romans 1 when it said that they gave themselves over to worshiping the created rather than the creator. We don't want to mess with looking at the stars for astrology purposes to guide our life. We don't need that. God gives us all the direction we need. So don't dabble in that area. Astrology is a dangerous thing to get into. It's just one more step in the wrong direction. So thirdly, we've got illuminate. So we've got separate, dominate, and to illuminate, just to provide light for us. How in the world did Moses know all this 5,000 years ago? 600 years ago, men were still proposing that the planet Earth was flat. It's my widely held misconception that everybody believed it was flat. That was not the case But many people who were into philosophy and examining the planet and those who were voyagers believed that the earth was flat. So 600 years ago, people still believed the planet was flat, yet Moses knew 5,000 years ago all these facts that we've looked at. How could he have known that were it not for God who created those things to reveal them to him? He made the stars also. Verse 16, God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. That's it. What else can be said about that? Except if we start digging in a little bit closer in understanding just one of the planets in our solar system. You know that the planet Jupiter actually serves as a bodyguard to our planet? In 1994, there was a comet that was headed towards planet Earth. I challenge you to go home this afternoon and do a little research yourself and look at the history of the comet called Shoemaker-Levy. In 1994, Shoemaker-Levy exploded into the planet Mars. Most astrophysicists believe that if if I'm sorry, if Jupiter had not absorbed the impact of Shoemaker-Levy, it was on a trajectory course to hit Earth dead on. If the planet Jupiter was any bigger in its mass or any closer to planet Earth, it would totally destroy our gravitational system. If it was any further out, it would serve no purpose to us and not work as a bodyguard. So when you look at Earth moving around and Jupiter stays with it in the rotation, it serves as a galactic bodyguard to our planet. That's a very recent discovery. Shoemaker-Levy is a fascinating study if you want to look at that yourself. And they can show on picture the actual explosion of the comet into the planet. You may have seen, when you look at Star Wars, uh, some of the two binary star systems. Adam, do you have that photo? That image might be familiar to you if you're a Trekkie at all or you like looking at scientific movies and you see the glows in the distance above the horizon. Those are actually called binary stars. And I'm sorry to deflate your imagery of Star Trek mania, But when you have a binary star system, life cannot exist because the gravitational pull is so powerful, it destroys anything on the planet that's a living organism. Why is that important? Because scientists have found that just in our galaxy alone, half of the star systems are binary stars. So that makes our star system, our solar system, all the more unique. And then among those remaining 50% that are not binary, scientists believe that today from examining with a Hubble telescope that actually only 2% of the remaining stars even have planets that rotate around them. Did God not give us a very unique created being here? In the sense that this is not a life that exists in many other worlds. The more science is finding, the more they're determining that we actually have a very unique biosphere. I'm going to take you into the world of science just a little bit. Can't go there too deep myself because I don't know a whole lot about it. But I can quote individuals who do make their living in that world. This is some of the recent discoveries since the year 2000. Now, I told you um, probably three weeks ago that the world's most leading astronomer, Dr. Alan Rex Sandage, recently came to Christ. He went to a debate in Dallas He confronted those who are believing in creationism and those who are believing in evolutionism by standing on the podium and reading this quote to them. He was to take take part in a debate. The Big Bang was a supernatural event that cannot be explained within the realm of physics as we know it. Science has taken us to the first event, but it can't take us further to the first cause. The sudden emergence of matter, space, time, and energy pointed to the need for some kind of transcendence. It is my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. It was only through a supernatural that I can understand the mystery of existence. And with that, I told you, he stepped back and announced to the crowd, I have become a Christian. Now, the reason that is profound is Dr. Sandage was raised as an atheist, a profound atheist. He studied under Edwin Hubble. Evolution was everything to him. But with the event of an experiment that's called the Boomerang Project that took place in April of 2003, the eyelids began to open among the world's most leading astrophysicists. That's where I want to take you a little bit today. Dr. George Wald, as a result of seeing the evidence from the Boomerang Project, made this quote, The reasonable view was to believe in spontaneous generation. The only alternative was to believe in a single primary act of supernatural creation there is no third position he's correct there is no third position you either believe in spontaneous arrival of the planet or you believe in God being the supernatural creator there's no third alternative so this is how a theologian responded to all these issues about a hundred years ago Are You familiar with CS Lewis the Lord of the Rings author you kids listen very closely to this because he didn't just write The Lord of the Rings. He also wrote a book called God and the Dock. If the solar system was brought about by an accidental collision, then the appearance of organic life on this planet was also an accident, and the whole evolution of man was also an accident. If so, then all our present thoughts are accidents. The accidental byproduct of the movement of atoms, this holds for the thoughts of the materialist and the astronomers as well as for everybody else. But if their thoughts are merely accidents, why should we believe any of them? I see no reason for believing that one accident should be able to give me a correct account of all the other accidents. That's an interesting thing to keep in mind when you begin looking at the boomerang project. Now, here's what happened. In Antarctica, in 1993, a balloon was launched over the top of Antarctica to carry a telescope. As high as they could get it up into the stratosphere, the stratosphere being about 90,000 feet. Now, just below the stratosphere, it was still stable enough winds to be able to float this balloon and put a very, very expensive telescope on top of it. 1993 brought back so many readings that were informative to the scientists at that time that they thought, we should do this again. So 10 years later, in 2003, the Boomerang Project was launched again. The information that came back was so overwhelming that three of the world's leading astrophysicists immediately reversed their position on being atheists and said, there's no way we can any longer support this. The world is too finely tuned. What they found was that if space energy density, it's not a word I totally understand, but I I know they use it. They said that if, if it changed at all, By one one one-tenth of a part of 10 to the 120th zero, I know, it's a, a leap, life as we know it would not exist. Now, I want you to see what that looks like. 10 to the 120th power. That's not all. That's just from one finding. Now, that's if space density changed at all. Now, they understood as a result of doing the boomerang project That also, the gravity that encompasses our earth is so finely tuned and adjusted that if it was off by one degree, insects would have to have legs made of armor plating in order to walk. And if it was any lighter, life would cease to exist. Now, when they took all these things, these components known as the quantities in the universe and combined them together, they found that the number was so Huge, enormous, that they could not even begin to calculate how many elements came together to allow Earth's existence. So finely tuned. Now, they used the five categories I talked to you about earlier, space, time, force, matter, action, to calculate these findings. These are the comments that have come back from men who used to hold a very strongly atheistic view. These are scientists. These are their quotes. Dr. Stephen Hawkings from Cambridge: "It would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us." You might remember Dr. Carl Sagan. they were partners together. Dr. Sagan's uh, since deceased. Dr. Paul Davies, I find, to be one of the most fascinating comments, a profound atheist. The laws of physics seem themselves to be the product of exceedingly ingenious design. There is, for me, powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. Lastly, as we survey all the evidence, the thought insistently arises that some supernatural agency must be involved. Is it possible that without intending to, we have stumbled upon scientific proof of the existence of a supreme being? Was it God who stepped in and so providentially crafted the cosmos for our benefit? King David had it right. The heavens declare the glory of God. We are watching a time in which the world's leading authorities are coming to the conclusion that They were right. I don't necessarily want to admit it yet. So they write it in very technical jargon that it appears that perhaps there's a providential being who stepped in. Well, I've got news for you. If there's a providential being stepped in, he proclaimed it 5,000 years ago and said, by the way, this is how I did it. But I won't give you too much evidence. Just enough to tease you. What's God after in creation? What is He after? What's the ultimate purpose for putting this for us in the book of Genesis? I think we find the answer to that in what we read in the very beginning in Psalms chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth, who have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. When I consider Your heavens, the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars which You have ordained, what is man that You take thought of him? and the son of man that you care for him yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and you crown him with glory and majesty you make him to rule over the works of your hands you have put all things under his feet o lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth yare yare what can the finger of god do We've just taken 20 minutes. We've barely scratched the tip of our fingernails. You owe it to yourself to do further examination. We're going to enter into a time of questions. I don't know if there's two questions or five or ten questions. And if you need to leave, we want to honor that. Feel free that if you've got appointments or you've got a roast in the oven, you can do that. Randy is going to gather up any questions that you might have that you wanted to send into the center of the aisle But please know that you are free if you need to get up and go to an appointment. We're going to take this for about 10 or 15 minutes as long as the questions go. So if you have some... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Randy, and collect them. Andrew's got one. He wants to just yell out. Thank you, Andrew. You're right. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. His contemporary wrote the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien, right? Yes. You try and get up here and do this. She wants you all to know her birthday is March 17th. (laughs) Okay, could you re-explain the light traveling thing? I didn't understand it. I can later today when we go home. It is complicated, isn't it? You know, the speed of light messes me up, but just to know that it can travel at 186,000 miles per second. Boggles my mind. I will explain that to you later, Mackenzie. That'll take a long time. Any other questions? Yes. Hi, Lauren. Uh, Lauren's question is: is there, is there anything biblically that explains the age of the planet? And yes and no. Um, if you go back to uh, week two and week two of the se- uh, week one and week two of the series, I explained that in great detail. But briefly. Um, if you take Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There appears to be at verse 2 a break in time. I am not a gap theorist believer it's for the fact that there, are, there doesn't need to be billions of years for the earth to evolve during the gap of verse 1 and verse 2. But what we explained during that period of time was there is a, clearly the fall of Satan took place at some time within that realm. So whether God had Satan here on this planet before the recreation of this planet or at the time of creation He allowed Satan to be cast to it, we don't know the answer to that. That's, that's a big leap. We'll have to talk separately about that, Lauren, because um, there are a lot of really good Christian Christians who are scientists. I almost said Christian scientists. There are a lot of good Christians who are scientists that can show evidence for the earth being much much older than the 10 to 25 thousand years that most conservative theologians hold but there are a lot of really good christians who are scientists who can also show the reverse evidence for it you can't find anything in there other than the words yam which is day which is a 24-hour day that always represents a 24-hour day every time it's used And when God closes out each day by saying, there was Arab and Bokur, morning and evening, that's another Jewish phrase that only is used in a 24-hour day. So if you're really asking, was it six literal days? Yes, six 24-hour solar days. What happened just before that? How did the earth get instantly formed? Could be much older than that. If you step back to the time when uh, the oldest written book is the book of Job it is not the book of Genesis that was the very first book recorded as far as we can tell the book of Job would predate the book of Genesis which was written by Moses by perhaps as much as 3 to 400 years but if you took that to its greatest extent somewhere between 5000 and 4500 years that would be that's when this began to be recorded Now, most theologians today would say that Moses wrote down the things that God inspired him to write down as a result of the stories that Adam told to his children, that his children told to his children. And during that 40-day period of time when God called Moses up onto Mount Sinai, a lot of theologians believe that's when Moses began to record this evidence that we have in the book of Genesis. So, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are all written by Moses. And the earliest one by Moses would be the book of Genesis. Do you have some to put on the screen, Adam? Okay, sorry. Do you have any recommendations for further reading on the area of origins? Oh, do I? Yes. Uh, You know, you're going to find if you uh, go on the websites uh, for the book of origins for Genesis. Probably three thousand different books out there. One of the most recent ones that I've just really enjoying because he did so much legwork is Lee Strobel's book called *The Case for the Creator*. And this is a very quick premise for it. I'm not trying to sell you a book, but this is what Lee did. Lee is a Harvard law graduate. He currently serves at a church over in California. He was the legal editor for Chicago Sun Times. He was an atheist. He set out on a journey to disprove Christianity and in the midst of it, became a Christian himself over a three-year research period of time. As a result of doing that research, he went back and carried out the same formula to do what's called the case for the creator. And he spent three years meeting with physicists all over the world to get their perspectives. It's a really good read and it's easily read. Uh, The case for the creator, Lee Strobel. What does the creation account reveal about the character of God? Wow. <laughs> that he loves you more than you can possibly comprehend. To create for us that the heavens declare the glory of God and he put man on here to declare his glory. I asked you last week, how do we give God glory? By recognizing that He did this for us. He loves us. He, he loves us. He loves us. And we don't get that. Does it also reveal... Oh, there's another question. Okay, I'm taking too long. A few weeks ago you explained that God cast Satan to earth before it was created. Why do you think God prepared a place for man where Satan lived? I have had this question so many times in the last three weeks. I am as confused as any of you that God would prepare a perfect place for us to inhabit and allow a fallen being like Satan to also be present at the same time. I would tell you what I was taught in Bible college. I will tell you what many of my mentors have talked to me about. I will tell you what I also found that is consistent with that through my study of Scriptures. It appears that God is so determined to have glory attached to Himself to prove to His created beings that He is worthy of their glory, of us worshiping Him, that He set up an environment in which There was a fallen creature who could tempt us. And that fallen creature won in that temptation. And God wanted to redeem his people, and so he gave his son to pull them back. Why did God put Satan on earth in the first place? He cast him out. He threw him to earth, according to what Scripture said. And he was here at the time of creation, and he was allowed to enter the garden to tempt Eve and Adam Because he is the father of lies and sin, he was present. But why do you think God prepared a place for man to live where Satan also lived? You're going to have to ask God that one yourself because I will tell you that theologians have struggled with that for eons. Why do we have free will? Is it free will if God created a perfect environment where we had absolutely no temptation? There wouldn't be anything to prove. Now, I'd love to still live in paradise. Did God create dinosaurs at the same time he created the rest of the creatures and when did they go extinct according to the biblical account? We don't know when they went extinct according to the biblical account. We do know that they were created at the time that all the animals were created because scripture says all the animals of the earth. Now think this through. Think about the intellect of Adam when scripture says in chapter 2, that God brought all the animals of the earth before Adam to name them. How big would your intellect have to be to come up with a name for everything from Tyrannosaurus Rex down to Platypus, duckbill, whatever that thing is? Can you imagine the grasp of his intelligence? And God said that he didn't find a suitable being for them among all the creatures So that means the dinosaurs were created at the same time. When did they go extinct? This is what most theologians will tell you. This is what I was taught in Bible college. That at the time of the flood, the collapse of that canopy that we talked about two weeks ago that held the oxygen content up to about 70% was so intense that it caused the lungs of these massive animals who needed to have oxygen capacity they could no longer actually breathe and sustain life on earth. And therefore, their lung capacity wouldn't keep up with a depleted 70% down to 20% reduction. Is that accurate? I do not know. Why was Cain afraid that whoever finds me will kill me? Where did these people come from? Boy, well, you guys. <laughs> Anybody here need to leave early at all? <laughs> Clearly, these are the offspring of Adam and Eve. There, there is no other way around it. God created Adam and Eve, and at that point, the creation of mankind was complete. And He gave them to create or to procreate. So clearly, those were Cain's siblings. How old was Cain when somebody wanted to try and kill him? That's what you should be asking. You look at Adam, who is 960 years old according to Scripture. So, a lot of time for a big offspring. Is there any more, Adam? Oh, Good. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Thanks, Lauren. (laughs) I don't know. They obviously, what's that? Well, Jerry's answer. I I will tell you, uh, here's what I encourage you to do. Go to a website called Answers in Genesis, AIG.com. And there's a very long seven-page explanation from some of the world's most renowned creation scientists who will give their personal position. No one was there. We don't know. I'm going to emphasize for you again, we know what we know theologically here that we can combine with science. When we start leaping to answers, it then becomes conjecture. If we can back it up scripturally and scientifically combined, that's great. But if it's conjecture, it's just our opinion. You really need to treat it that way. Yeah, Rick. I thought I was out of here. You hit it really straight Our God is so awesome. Yeah. Let me close with this thought. And that's a good reminder, Rick. Uh, you might remember, might remember, if you were raised in the church at all, or perhaps you've read this recently, that there's a story in the New Testament in which um, there's a very wealthy man. And he died. And Jesus is telling this story, so we'll take it for what it is. Jesus said this very wealthy man died and went to hell. And the beggar who sat outside his gate, Lazarus, went to heaven. And that this very wealthy man from hell could for somehow, for some reason, see across that great gap and see Lazarus and begged God to send Lazarus to him to cool his tongue with a drip of water remember what God's response to him was? No, I'm not going to do that. The the wealthy man then said from the pits of hell, if you will not send him, at least send him to the earth to warn my brothers about this terrible place and this torture that I'm in. What was God's response to him? They have the prophets and the Scriptures. If they will not believe based on that, they will not believe. If we cannot take the theological truth and accept it for what it is, and science is great to reinforce it, we have a much bigger issue of our leap of even the belief of the existence of God. We'll leave it with that. Okay, I didn't mean to start preaching at you. Well, actually I did. Okay. Let's go ahead and close up this morning. Can I invite you just to pray with me? Father, we want to be a people who walk in humility before you and we can get puffed up because we think we have answers. You are the God who has the answers. You said to Job, where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth? So cause myself and my brothers and sisters in this room not to walk out haughty or feeling like we've got solutions other than the solution that Jesus Christ is the only way to get to you. That is the solution that you most want us to know about. God, I thank you for a time like this when we can, as a body, dialogue together and talk about truths that you've revealed to us in your Scripture. It's not only fun to do, but it's Yahweh. It's awesome. We really, really want to know more of you. So God, I ask that you would take the blinders away. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to walk in the confidence of what we know to be true, that you love us and you redeemed us. That's what we want to leave here with, Father. We stand in awe of you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Have an excellent, excellent week.